Chase Kitty here on the High Motor Podcast, the second part of the College Football Conference Preview Series, part two of six. On Monday on the High Motor Podcast, we broke down the Big 12. Today, we are going to break down the Pac-12. The Pac-12 dropped their schedule last week. That season, hopefully starting September 26th, what was supposed to be week four. Starting September 26th, ending December 5th, what would have been and might still be, I guess, conference championship weekend for some other conferences and then they're going to play the Pac-12 championship game. That's at the home stadium of the regular season champion, either on December 18th or December 19th. And they do have a couple of bye weeks baked into that schedule. One mass bye week before the conference championship game. If any games were to be canceled, they would be played that weekend, the weekend of December 12th. And then also each team has a bye week. Generally, those coming uh, in October. I believe actually all of them are coming in October. I don't have the schedule pulled up right in front of me, but I think they all are in October This is all assuming that the players and the conference reach some sort of understanding after the players released a list of demands last weekend threatening to all opt out of the season. Not all, I shouldn't say all. Uh, From reports, it seems like there are somewhere in the hundreds of players. By 100s, I'm saying I think the quote was more than 100 players have signed on to this. So, I mean, looking at the Pac-12, 12 12 teams, 115, 120-some-odd players on each team, We're only looking at less than 10% of the players, but still a very big number. And looking at these demands, I mean, these aren't going to be met in full. And the players have to know that these demands are not going to be met. They're not going to get 50% of the revenue right now. That may come down the road, whatever years down the road, but that's not going to happen in the next six or seven weeks. They're not going to get all these protections that they want for other sports at their universities from being cut. There's going to be no sort of guarantee on that. I don't think that's going to ever be a guarantee ever on the table for them, but they do have a lot of leverage in this situation and they are using it significantly here. Are they actually going to opt out of the season if they don't get this? We have no idea. They might not even know. However, I love it. I think whatever puts the heat on Larry Scott, whatever can reduce his salary, I'm all for it. I don't know if this is actually going to work though. Where are you with all of this? Yeah, I, I certainly don't have any philosophical objection to you know making demands along these lines. I think the traditional school of thought would be, who are you as 18 and 19-year-old kids to make demands like this? But I think a lot of people, especially uh, younger people like you and I, like we don't care. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with trying to start a dialogue or trying to make the environment that you're living in and playing in a better place. I think the the key factor is something that you already hit on. Like this is so many demands. It's so many and you've almost put a burden on yourself as the person who is asking for change by by asking for too much change. I think maybe the comparable thing, uh the, the comparable event here might be Occupy Wall Street from a few years ago when they started with one very clear demand, which was we want to get money out of politics, right? We want to sort of get back to a a more pure political arena. And then it sort of spiraled into this massive sheet of demands where it was never going to be possible to meet all of them or even 
really, you know, like some of them, like a third of them. And that's kind of what I see when I see this. I see good intentions and maybe even an interesting timing in terms of leverage and in terms of, of, of the timing on when you're going to try to make demands like this and seek change. But it just doesn't really seem all that realistic to me. And I think this is probably just going to turn into a, a story that happened, but no real change comes out of. How do you think this is going to shake out? Because I see this because we don't have a whole lot of time here. I mean, we're recording this on August 3rd. Like I said, the season's supposed to start on September 26th. That's like seven, little over seven weeks for this to be resolved, I guess. How I see this working out is they might get some of these things guaranteed in the next seven weeks. Like they might actually get something. I don't see them getting any sort of like financial agreement in place in that sort of time. No way. But I could see them getting some of these smaller concessions. Some of the a lot of these things are extremely reasonable and there's no reason why universities and the conference shouldn't seriously consider it because they are not they being the universities and conference, they're not in a position really to negotiate that much. They are hurting right now. And even though Larry Scott is still making over four million dollars a season, they don't have a whole lot of leverage here. So I see this working out where they might they, again, being the conference and the universities, give them some of the smaller things on here and then form some sort of like advisory board where they're going to not guarantee, but they're going to say, we're going to open up a dialogue and have this and blah, 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 and appoint uh, conference leaders from each school. I could see it working out that way. Totally. Yeah. And, and I, I could, I mean, it's so early in this that it could splinter and go several other directions. I mean, would, would you be surprised if you know, if we have one or two more rounds of bad news, we're recording this on a day where another uh, another baseball series was canceled because there were you know a dozen St. Louis Cardinals that tested positive for coronavirus. So if we have another couple of bad news rounds for college football, do you think this shifts from being a nicely timed leverage piece to now? Uh, this is the weight that ends up sinking the Pac-12's football season. I mean, I, it's so early that it could go in a couple of different directions now. Yeah, and even if the, and you said with the baseball series being canceled, even Northwestern became, I think it was the 14th or 15th, somewhere in that ballpark, uh, to cancel and or pause their, their off-season workouts because they had, I guess it's pretty much training camp workouts now, because they had one positive test. So there's also the possibility that the Pac-12 won't even play this season and how does that affect the leverage? If, if they don't play, are players still going to want these things? It, you'll change a little bit with how they handle COVID testing because if they're not playing, they're probably not going to be in the facility as much. They'll still be there, but they won't be as worried about it. But anyways, if they're not even playing, some things might just get taken off the table because of the logistics and all that. But I don't see how that changes the leverage of the players. They're still A lot of these things aren't COVID-related. Yeah, I'm sure it's hard for them to see some of their other friends in these different sports getting cut, that's probably brutal for them to watch. So maybe that stays in there. Maybe the, the demands for Larry Scott's salary to be reduced stays in there. But a lot of these things that aren't COVID-related, if they're truly committed to this, and yeah, it's only less than 10% of the entire conference, just one sport of thousands of student-athletes, over 100 football players is still a noticeable, a, a still a real amount. And there are some real names in here that have come out and tweeted and spoken up about this. So I don't see how their leverage actually changes, they might actually even, I don't know, do they gain more leverage? If the season isn't played and the universities are hurting this much, do they gain more leverage then going into next year when they have eight months to actually negotiate this thing, or I guess even 12 months to negotiate this thing? 
I think financially, maybe you have a little bit more leverage, but I think the news cycle probably washes that out. Um, in terms of the farther you get away from the beginning of the story, I think the harder it is for people, the average everyday people to really care. Uh, it, it's really hard to hold people's attention, hold people's sympathy over months and months, let alone you know a year or more in multiple seasons of a sport. So I, I think maybe all that's, it could be a wash. How do you feel about the, the demand about Larry Scott's salary? I saw somebody on Twitter today, uh, and whether you agree with this or not, I, th- I thought it was a point worth bringing up. If you were to go interview for like a factory job at Amazon, it would be odd to make demands about Jeff Bezos's salary as a base level employee. And it's not a perfect analogy for a lot of reasons, one of which is technically student athletes are not employees. But I did think it was an interesting enough observation to bring up. So I, I thought I'd ask you about that. How do you feel about that particular demand? I like it because I just don't like Larry Scott. And it's always <laughs> that, that was predictable. That's a, that's well, an easy I mean, answer. Yes, like personally, I've never talked to him. I just don't like the guy because he, he stands up there and shouts off all of these stupid bullshit phrases. Oh, it's in the best interest of those student athletes. And he's, I mean, he's moving their office. Uh, he moved their offices to to the downtown San Francisco. They're paying hundreds of thousand dollars in rent every single month. He's taking private jets. He's staying at Las Vegas penthouses. He's running the conference like he's the, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Whereas a lot of these other conferences, like the SEC, is in Birmingham. Their rent is a little bit different because of how the city structured it. But it's always rubbed me the wrong way when he can sit up here in his ivory towers. Yes, even with, I think he took like a 10 or a 15% pay cut down from like 5.3 to whatever it is now, somewhere in the fours. That's rubbed me the wrong way. I I don't like your analogy personally because like with all due respect to factory, factory workers at Amazon, if you take away a couple factory workers, it's not like taking away some football players from the equation because I think that we don't realize, maybe you and I actually do probably, generally I don't think people realize how much power football players have at a program. We've always talked about so long, like the head coach is the most powerful person um, in the athletic department, the most powerful person at the school, usually the most powerful person in the state. But in a lot of cases, these student athletes, especially football players and men's basketball players or anybody that's really a revenue sport, they carry just a shit ton of power. And I don't know how we can find any way to, to put a quantitative measure on that, but there's so much power with these student athletes that I think they're finally realizing it. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how to answer your question. I'm fine with Larry Scott getting a reduced salary because I just don't like the idea of a conference commissioner making four or five million dollars when student athletes aren't paid. Even if they're not paid, they're they're going to be allowed to get the name, image, and likeness. But that's always rubbed me uh, the wrong way a little bit. You want to talk about the conference? Let's talk about the worst good team. We're going to start there because we started there with the Big 12. And looking at the worst good teams in the 12-team conference, the Pac-12, Colorado's going to be really bad. I think we're on the same page with that. Arizona will be a better version of bad. And then, for me, there are, one, two teams that I still don't know what to do with. Oregon State, Washington State. I really don't know what to do with Washington State after some of this Nick Rolovich and staff stuff has come out. Uh, over the last few days. Now, I really don't know what to do with them. I think if you're using the same barometer for the worst good team as we did in the Pac-12, as excuse me, as we did in the Big 12, it's Washington State or, excuse, yeah, it's Washington State or Oregon State, in my opinion. Where are you at with them? So you think those teams are going to be good? I think that they're going to be at that level where we talked about 
the Big 12 is interesting because you don't have as many teams to pick with. Like, I right. think that TCU is a good, worst good, and then the team below that, well, West Virginia, we said, there's a pretty big gap there. So I think that those teams are worse than TCU, but they are better than a West Virginia. So if we're carrying that same uh, barometer that we use for the Big 12, I think those teams kind of fit in the middle there. Um, then I, we also need to talk about Stanford, because for, like, for what it's worth in my personal rankings, I have Stanford in the same national ballpark as TCU. But again, I think there's a bigger gap between TCU and then the bottom three teams in the, in the Big 12, like we talked about. That gap doesn't really exist after Stanford who for me is the sixth best team in the Pac-12, TCU being the seventh best team in the Big 12. Like the gap after Stanford is noticeable, but not huge. And then that's where it goes down to Oregon State and Washington State, and then all the way down to UCLA if you want to talk about them. So I think for that, it's Stanford. But I think for how we were doing the Big 12, I think you have to look at Oregon State or Washington State. But it doesn't seem like you think they're going to be a good, either of those are going to be good this year. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be terrible. Like, I, I think when you, the Big 12 is so complex and it's really hard as a first conference in terms of trying to lay out maybe what worst good teams should be uh, because it drops off so dramatically in that conference. In, in other conferences, like we referenced in the previous episode, there, there's a more, uh, there are more tiers of teams. There's national contenders, there's conference contenders, there's kind of a middle class, and then there's like, Ugh. and then whatever's beyond eh. So I think with the Pac-12, first of all, I think I'm higher on Stanford than you are. So I'm for my personal analysis, I'm going to take them out of the mix completely. I think they're going to be actively good. I think they're a top 40 team this year. Uh, I think... But I think Stanford's a top 40 team too. It's just I think that there's a pretty big gap in between Stanford and Oregon State and Washington State. And I think those two teams are going to be good. I just, I'm having a hard time. Like, I feel like we kind of laid the groundwork with the Big 12, and I'm trying to stick exactly to how we explained it for that. But in terms of actually being good, I don't know how good Oregon State and Washington State are going to be, or they're just going to be like, eh. But I know Stanford's going to be good. I think Stanford's probably going to be better than TCU. Uh, I think, I definitely think Stanford's going to be better than TCU. I just don't think Oregon State and Washington State are going to be good teams this year. I think the worst good team in the Pac 12 this year. And this is maybe a little bit out of left field, but I think I have the receipts to back it up. I think the worst good team in the Pac-12 this year is going to be Utah. So you have Stanford comfortably ahead of Utah. I do. So you don't think Utah will be more than a top, well, if you have Stanford top 40, where's Utah? Top 50-ish? Yeah, I, th- I think they're going to be in the mi- like comfortably in the middle of the Pac-12 this year. I, th- I think there will be four or five teams that are better than them. And it's it's strictly because of how much they lose, how much they have to replace. I still think when you look at the the momentum and the coaching staff they have, I have enough trust in them that they're going to be a decent football team this year. But I do think they're going to take a pretty big step back in terms of where they were last year and how much they're going to lose. They, they were within a stone's throw of seriously being in contention, you know, depending on how the committee shakes things out. They might have made the playoff last year. So they were in that camp, and I think they're going to be significantly behind that this year. So now I'm trying to figure this out in my head, how you have this essentially ranked. If you think that Utah is below, do you have anybody between Stanford and Utah? Uh, I, You know, I don't really have it written down like in a, in a clear, specific order here. 
like we were doing a poll. Well, but I guess yeah, like, I imagine who's, that who's, I do. Who's above that? I guess so. You have USC above that. You have Oregon above. Both I have USC teams. at the top. Uh, I have Oregon somewhere in the mid. I would probably have Oregon somewhere between Stanford and Utah this year. So that's a good answer. Uh, I'll take that. Oregon below Stanford. I'm really wow. high on Stanford this year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I I so, think I I think, and we talked about this on the podcast. Stanford is really consistent, and they weren't great last year. So people are going to forget how good they are because it's you know people have short memories. They're going to be good this year. I just maybe I'm a little higher on that bounce back than other people. Maybe that's the whole contrarian thing. But I, I do think they're probably going to be a top three team in the Pac-12 this year. And I thought I was high on Stanford, and this kind of transitions to our, our dark horse portion here, and you're obviously not going to have the same one as I am, but I had Stanford written down as my dark horse because even with all of the, the injuries forcing guys to play last year that wouldn't normally play, Stanford is still 28th in returning production, both offensive defense over 70%, and there are fewer than 25 teams in the FBS have that on both sides, 70% on both offensive defense, and they're they're just not going to have the injuries like last year. I know it's kind of a stupid game to play, and you can you can talk more on that. If they did this, it's not going to happen this year. If they did that, it's not going to happen this year with odds and all that. It was outrageous what happened to them last year, especially in the offensive line. They just didn't have guys to play on the offensive line. They're going to have an offensive line this year. It's not going to be as good as some that made Stanford a top 10 team that could just run the ball down your throat constantly for so many years after Harbaugh got there and David Shaw took over, but it's going to be good enough. And I just trust David Shaw. I trust his recruiting. I trust his staff to bounce back. And I get that this isn't a true dark horse guy, especially talking to you about this now that I know how high you are in Stanford, but it's really hard for me to see anyone in the North getting in over Oregon. I think that Oregon is the clear favorite in the conference, the clear favorite in the North. So I don't see anybody getting past Oregon, but I'm still calling Stanford to be my dark horse because nationally, I th- clearly you are way higher in Stanford than most, I would say 99% of people nationally. I think I'm higher on most people nationally, but not quite as much because I think there's a noticeable but not gigantic gap between Oregon and Stanford. I do think that after Stanford, they're noticeably ahead of Washington. They're noticeably ahead of Cal, but they are still behind USC. Obviously, that's not going to fall in line with your definition of a dark horse in the Pac-12. Yeah, I, I think nationally Stanford is a perfect dark horse because I, for all the reasons we've already laid out, you know, people are going to sleep on them because they didn't have a good season last year. But you you have to remember that that's a blip in terms of who they've been under David Shaw. It's also a West Coast team that people just aren't watching. They're not staying up for those games. They don't realize why they're bad, why they... I think they went four and eight last year, all those injuries. I think they suffered from that where people don't actually realize why they were bad. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 so I'm higher on Stanford than I am on Cal, but I think Cal is a really interesting pick here too, just because of what they bring back specifically on offense. They bring back more offensive production than anybody in FBS, period, full stop. So that is a really interesting stat. I'm interested to see if Cal can put together a more complete season than they did in 2019. Uh, I don't really take them seriously as a true conference contender, but I do think they could have like a nice eight and four, nine and three type season and really maintain their relevance later into the year this year. I consider Cal just because, and we've talked about Justin Wilcox quite a bit on the show. I think that Justin Wilcox is a good year, maybe not this year with all the, the virus. And we'll talk about hot seat here in a little bit with how slow 
we believe the coaching carousel is going to go. But I think Justin Wilcox is a really good season away from being in line for one of the top 10, top 15 jobs in college football if it were to open. If if this were a non-virus year and USC were to open, I don't know if they're quite in that top 10 range anymore. Just outside of it, though, would USC go after somebody like Justin Wilcox? I just I don't see... To be a true dark horse, again, how we defined it with the Big 12, jumping up and truly contending, like being a real contender to make the Pac-12 championship game, I have a really hard time seeing Cal fight through the mess. Fight through the mess of a lot of unknowns at Washington. I get all that. I think Oregon State's going to be better this year. Like I said, I don't think Washington State's going to be as bad. Again, we'll see how this Nick Rolovich situation sorts itself out. But I don't see them getting through this mess, and even if you do... If that were to be the case, regardless of what happens getting through that mess, I think the gap between them and presumably, in my opinion, Oregon is way too big for me. I'm kind of like them as you were in Iowa State, where I'm I'm very high on Cal. I like Cal a lot this year. Like you said, the return of production on offense, I think they have 10 or 11 starters coming back on offense. They have most of their defense coming back. The front seven is almost entirely back. I've talked about Justin Wilcox. You, you move on from Bo Baldwin who uh, he left, I guess, but it seemed like they really wanted to move on from him because the offense couldn't really do anything. I'm very skeptical of Bill Musgrave. I don't know if that was the right hire. He is going to run a lot of the same bland system that Bo Baldwin ran, not the same exact system, but the type of concepts. I don't love that hire, but I'm just as high on them as you were in Iowa State. I just think I'm a little bit lower in calling them a true Pac-12 title contender. Was it a clear choice for you for Cal for Dark Horse? No, I, I maybe I didn't frame that correctly. I, I would I would pick Stanford as well, right? I, I think Stanford's the right pick. I just wanted to go into a little more detail about another team because you talked about Stanford really eloquently. I'm higher on Stanford than I am on Cal. If you're giving me one or the other to make the Pac-12 North Championship, I'm picking Stanford. I'm picking Stanford to win at Cal. Like I, I'm all in on Stanford this year, even though I think USC is is the best team in the conference. I'm really high on Stanford. I just think Cal deserved to mention. That's all. This next part I'm excited to talk about because I thought it was a really interesting conversation starting with the Big 12 because we said with the irrelevancy in the Big 12, it's really hard to find that much irrelevancy with only 10 teams. And now I'm excited to shift to a conference with more teams. It'd be really interesting if we can get 14 teams into this conversation. But in the Pac-12, I think it's Colorado that's the most irrelevant but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on a team like Arizona. I don't I don't know if that's the team you were going to pick here because it was a few, well, probably more than that, probably a month ago now when we finished up the Neighborhood Series where we both agreed that Arizona, the idea of Arizona, I think that generally nationally we put Arizona in higher regard than they actually are. They Absolutely. had a couple of, nice, couple of nice years under Rich Rod, and other than that, Arizona's not really anything. They're just kind of like that four, five, six win team. And for some reason, we just feel like Arizona is better, should be better, will be better. We're always higher on Arizona than they usually shake out the Khalil Tate factor. Most people like the Kevin Sumlin hire. That is not working out very well. We'll talk about that a little bit with the hot seat. But I'm curious how that plays in, especially if they are your team that's the most irrelevant, how this perception of them nationally actually makes them irrelevant within the Pac-12. All right, so I I went back and forth on several options here. Coming out of the gate, I went to look at Colorado. I knew that's what you were going to say, uh, and, and I, wanted to, I wanted to give them a good once-over. I decided that they were too good too recently compared to some other teams in the conference for them to truly be the most irrelevant. 
I think if they continue on the path that you have very like eloquently laid out that they are on, I think next year and definitely two years from now, most irrelevant, I'm, I'm all with you. But there are teams that have failed to win for years and years and years uh, that, that I think probably makes a better case for most irrelevant in the conference. So you mentioned Arizona. I went and did a nice deep dive on Arizona. Arizona, interestingly enough, how many nine-win seasons do you think they've had in the last 20 years? They won nine under Rich Rod once, didn't they? I'm going to say one. Yeah, they, they've had one, and I think it was a while ago. I think it was before Rich Rod. They didn't have one under Rich Rod. I don't think so. Now I'm going to look it up to make sure. So is Arizona your most irrelevant thing? It's not. I think there's a more irrelevant one than that. And, and no, they did. They won 10 under Rich Rod in 2014. That was the one. That, that was Rich Rod. Okay. And even, I mean, we can even go before then. They don't. Like, they popped up for 12 wins in 98, and now we're getting back in irrelevancy 25, 30 years ago isn't that relevant here. Right. But I was in elementary wins. school in 98. <laughs> right. They had 10 wins in 93, and, like, they had some nice seasons, but generally, again, they are living in that three- to six-win range, and they got a little bit of stability in a rich rod, and that's that's kind of it. Right. So I started thinking about the other one. Arizona, like, they, they, were, they were a contender, but I think when you consider the fact that and I don't even know if this is a good argument, but the fact that we think they're better than they are kind of gives them some semblance of relevancy, right? Even though it's it's smoke, it's not actually really anything, that still, I feel like, kind of makes them relevant. Um, maybe yeah, it's that a, makes sense. The, so that we have the perception that they are the, better than they right. should be, or they are a better program exactly. than they really Therefore, are. Therefore, that kind of makes them relevant, even though it's not even true. Maybe it's a basketball thing. I, I don't know. But I don't think it can be them either. So I started looking at some other teams. Uh, I, I thought maybe maybe it's Washington State now that the Pirate captain has left the building. I think it's Oregon State. And that's not to say that Oregon State sucks. They certainly have had some, some years in the last decade where they were really bad. But they just haven't done anything in a decade worth talking about. That, that, that's not to say they haven't had decent teams. But it's just... What have they done recently where you're like, oh, oh yeah, remember remember when that Oregon State team did, you know, randomly won nine games and, you know, was in competition for the Rose Bowl late? And, like, when was the last time they did anything that you would ever mention? That's, I think, kind of the definition of irrelevance. I have an answer to that, but really quickly. So going back to Arizona, since 1999, which is kind of cheating because they won 12 games in 98, but since 1999, over the last... 21 years where do you think they rank nationally for wins oh it's low because that's that's pretty much the same time frame i looked at the whole 20 well, year exactly nine where do you low. think they rank among fbs teams uh ballpark 70s or 80s yeah they're tied for 80th i mean they're in the yeah. same ballpark as like a purdue kentucky wake forest it's bad yeah virginia it's, it's Memphis, way lower that. than you think yeah, I mean, they're 21 games under 500 over the last 21 years. That's not a small sample size. I mean, teams like Arkansas State and South Florida and Bowling Green, Nevada have far more wins than Arizona over the last 21 seasons. Regarding Oregon State, wins and losses-wise, just like we made the argument for Kansas and Texas Tech, wins and losses-wise, I'm fine with saying that Oregon State's the most irrelevant. I think because of the coaching situations that they've had, where Mike Riley left that job for Nebraska, and that was such a weird hire on Nebraska's part, I think that put more attention 
on Oregon State for that. And then Gary Anderson left one of the, I don't know, 15 to 20 best jobs, maybe even better, in Wisconsin for Oregon State. And then he leaves without taking a buyout. Those three things alone, I think, make Oregon State relevant. Even though when they hired Jonathan, Jonathan Smith, most people outside of the Pac-12 and the West Coast didn't really know Jonathan Smith that well. Turns out it was a hell of a hire, and he finally has them moving in the right direction. And I, I don't have any problem with saying that Oregon State is the most competitively irrelevant. I think that they're above Colorado because, fair or not, I mean, like Colorado hired San Jose State's head coach and Mike McIntyre. They fired him, but it worked out very well for one year, and I would say that was a successful hire. But they're hiring a guy like John Embry, who nobody knew about. They're hiring Mike McIntyre, who nobody knew about. Whereas Oregon State has been the subject of three very high-profile coaching decisions over the last, God, what, six or seven years. Therefore, I think there's enough relevancy there to say that they are above Colorado. That's a really interesting argument. I, I buy that. Yeah, that's a good argument. Going back to, I have this page pull up here when I was talking about Arizona. Going to Colorado for my argument, looking back since Dan Hawkins was hired in 2006, so what, 14 years, where do you think Colorado ranks among wins? Oof. Um, Let me give you just a, a clue here. They are 53 games under 500 over that time. Wow. That is, That's what, so four, roughly four games under 500 per year. Well, I would, I would, I would say not good then. <laughs> They're not in the top 10. Not, not, I would say probably not even in the top 20. Here's who's in their ballpark, G5-wise. Kansas is in their ballpark. Illinois is in their ballpark. Iowa State's in their ballpark. Purdue, Indiana, a little bit above them. G5 in their ballpark. Miami of Ohio, New Mexico, Tulane, Akron, Utah. That's That's the the ballpark. They're tied for 110th with UAB. All right. You convinced me. It's Colorado. So, I mean, even maybe it even is a wins and losses thing because Oregon State, over that same period, 83rd. So they're significantly above Colorado. Yeah, you convinced maybe, me. It's Colorado. Maybe I, maybe I was wrong on wins and losses-wise. I don't even think I would accept wins and losses-wise as Oregon State being the most competitive, competitively irrelevant team. Yeah. I, especially I, where, I wanted to give him credit for the nice 2017 season, but clearly, I mean, that's you can't. That's not enough. One good year cannot erase what I've made that my much feelings, terribleness. I made my feelings very clear on the Carl Durrell hire and where I think Colorado was going as a program. Yeah. Therefore, I'm, I'm very confident in saying that there, there could be an argument for that right now, but I think in one, two, three, four years, it is very clearly going to be Colorado as the most irrelevant team in the Pac-12. Let's talk hot seat, and any conversation with the Pac-12 hot seat probably starts and, and maybe ends, depending on your opinion, with Clay Helton. The reported buyout for Clay Helton for much of last year, we've been kind of following it for the last two or three years now, actually really since he was hired full-time. Somewhere around $15 million was that reported buyout. And then Pete Thamel came and said at the end of last season, I think he reported this the last week in November, that that number was actually around $20 million for his buyout and entire staff changeover a year later. We can presume that went down a little bit, but we can also presume it's still probably around what the reported was $15 million last year. So they have a new AD, Mike Bone, who's been around a long time, not at USC, obviously, new there, came from Cincinnati. And looking at Mike Bone, I'm trying to figure out if there would be a change here because he has hired a shit ton of coaches. Tom Cable at Idaho, Dan Hawkins, Colorado, also John Embry, also Mike McIntyre, and then Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. I think this is a different deal, 
But Mike Bone has hired and fired a ton of coaches of revenue sports in almost 20 years as an AD. And I can't confidently say, even with all the financial problems that university is going to have, USC included in that, I can't confidently say that Mike Bone wasn't brought in to look for their new football coach. That's all fair. Uh, what I think there are better answers than Clay Helton in USC. And maybe I am being totally biased by the fact that I think USC is going to be far and away the best team in the Pac-12 this year. What they bring back, the talent they have, the, the pressure they're under, I think they're going to be really good. I think they're going to succeed. And I think Helton's going to get himself off the hot seat. I think they're going to be good enough this year that the only way he gets fired is if USC's administration is just like, you know what, we, we are completely uninterested in what happens on the field and with this yep. team we want to bring in our own guy, and that could happen. But yeah, I don't think it's going to happen, especially this season, as we've talked about significantly. Yeah. I don't think it would happen this year, but in a non-virus year, if Clay Helton came out and went 6-6, six and six, I think they'd probably eat that $15 million buyout. I would not bet on this. I don't know what percent chance I would give of this happening. If they go 2-8 and eight this season, maybe a very small percentage chance, but no, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet on that at all. I think I know the next name you're going to mention, and then I think the hot seat conversation ends with this next guy. Yeah, so I, I just, just to really wrap up USC here, I think there's too much good depth in the Pac-12 for the USC to go like 10-0 and this year, but I do think they could be a really strong like 9-1, and maybe even 8-2, and but like clearly the class of the conference. So that's kind of where I think they're going to be. So if you take Helton off the table for hot seat, I think there are two obvious names that come immediately after oh, him. Oh, I only have one. I oh, I've got the second two. One. I want to know the second one then. I think it's clearly Chip Kelly and Kevin Sumlin. Chip Kelly's not getting fired. I know that you UCLA wanted to make a big commitment to him, but it has not gone well so far. And if he has if he has another year where they're like 3 and 7, I'm not saying he gets fired, but they they start using some pretty strong language, don't you think? And that's kind of the definition of hot seat. Yeah, I think they do it with a new AD. Mitch Jarman came in coming over from Boston College. I'm trying to pull up. I wrote about Chip Kelly's buyout not too long ago. If he's fired without cause during the first four years of the contract, so he's entering year three now, he's owed $9 million. So he still has two more years, and that buyout doesn't drop. $9 million this year, $9 million next year. And that is much less than the $12 million buyout that they paid to Jim Mora, obviously different AD. I think they might have a new uh, different university president, so we can't really compare that there. I think that's a big enough number, and I know it's not as big as a Clay Helton number, but I think that UCLA showed enough improvement later in the year, yes, against bad teams, for him to be very safe in a virus year. Uh, I, I think you're I think you're right about that, especially the virus part of it. But I think if they are competitively in the same neighborhood that they have been in, where they are not really close to being a top half team or, or a, a team kind of worth talking about or watching, I think they are going to tell him, "Hey, buyout drops after year four, and you're coming up on year four, buddy. So you know, time to get some stuff together." I, I think I think that's where they go. With with Sumlin, here's another stat I looked up for for this for this episode. How many years do you think it's been since Kevin Sumlin had a conference record above 500? Well, his first year at A and M, I don't remember what year that was. 2000 and 
11 or 12, he had a lot of regular season wins. Yeah, he had to have gone over 500 that year. Yeah, it's that first A&M year. It's 2012. So what, they go 6-2? and They two? were 6-2 and two in the SEC. Yeah. Yeah. So and then since everything then, else has been 8-5, and 8-5, and 8-5. And since then has been 500 or less. And that's including two years now at Arizona. So, I mean, I'm the first guy to line up and say, hey, you know what? The SEC, in terms of getting wins, may be a little bit overrated in terms of its difficulty. Like, we all know what the SEC is at the top. There's plenty of winnable games there in the middle, and people always overlook that. So there's that. And now you got two years in the Pac-12 and you can't get north of 500 in in conference play. I like Kevin Sumlin. I've always liked Kevin Sumlin. But I don't know how you look at what he's done recently at the end at A&M, now with Arizona, and go, hey, man, we got to see something from you, you know? And it's getting worse, not better. So I I think he's the obvious choice here. Uh, I, I would argue that he is probably on above Helton on my list. I, I really yeah. think he's... I agree with that part of it. Yeah. And I I didn't say that correctly when I said the hot seat conversation starts with Clay Helton. I just mean that all of our eyes are, are on Clay sure. Helton, mine, probably yours too, and sure. nationally. Like it, it Generally, the Pac-12 hot seat is focusing on USC because even though we hold Arizona in a higher regard than they should be, quite frankly, nobody really gives a shit about Arizona football. A lot of people care about USC football. In terms of what's more likely to happen, absolutely, Kevin Sumlin. And I think that the big, well, there are two big things here. I think the optics of whether or not he's actually fully responsible for Khalil Tate's demise, the optics of that, I think, are still really, really bad. I mean, it feels like just yesterday when I think they opened with BYU in 2018, and here we're all looking at Khalil Tate, Heisman contender, like one of the top three or four um, Heisman contenders going into that season. He can't do anything. The Arizona the Arizona offense can't do anything. And Cleo Tate was basically broken for most of the last two years. I think the optics of that are really bad, and that's something that most people still haven't gotten over. Number two, the $5 million buyout is still a lot of money, especially right now, but it's not that much it's not that much money, and it's an extremely reasonable number. That being said, the major leadership just hasn't the leadership change hasn't happened in Arizona. Like the AD is still there from when someone was hired. The president is still there. So that buyout number might be high enough where somebody who hired someone isn't willing to pay that and saying, Hey guys, I blew it. I think that someone needs a complete bed shitting to be fired. With this schedule now ten games, I think he needs like a two and eight maybe a three and seven, anything else, I think gets him another year, which then saves Arizona another $2 million off that buyout. That buyout dropping to $3 million after next season, and then only a million dollars after the year like that, which is not nothing for schools right now. Generally, we'll sit here and say only $5 million, only $3 million, only $1 million. It's a completely different ballgame right now when these schools have no idea what their financial picture is going to look like three, six, nine months from now. So I think it's a, still a conversation to be had, even though his buyout looks small. It's still a very reasonable number. What do you think someone has to do to actually get fired in a virus year, and how good of a job is this actually? Um, I don't. How good of a job is it? Well, I think, I think you can get into the top two, certainly the top three in the Pac-12 South. Fair, like I don't think there's a ton of. of inconceivably difficult traffic ahead of you. Uh, so it's a decent job, and Arizona's going to have resources, even if it doesn't have 
the history that, that we've kind of outlined here. It's a decent job. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We, there, there are other places I'd rather be, even in the Pac-12, obviously. But it's but like a it's, you go out decent. and get a decent to a strong G5 coach. Like you could go out and maybe, I mean, Scott Satterfield is obviously gone, but a Scott Satterfield type of coach. You're, you might not get the Mike Norvell type of coach, but you're going to go out and get a really strong G5 coach. You're not going to go out and get Brian Harson, but you are going to get a strong G5 coach or one of a more sought-after P5 coordinator. Yeah, let me let me ask you what I think is a way more interesting question, which is kind of the, the, the flip side of what you're asking. If Kevin Sumlin gets fired at any point in the next three years, any point, he doesn't get his contract extended. Yeah. Where does he end up? What's his next job? Like I mean, what, what do you ballpark? Do you, go, do you go to like a like a North Texas? Like do you? I don't think he drops all the way down to like a Rice or a UTEP. I think it's like if a Seth Latrell leaves, maybe a North Texas. But he hasn't been a an assistant in a really really long time. No. So I don't know. I can't remember the last time he was an assistant. It has to be. 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and usually guys that aren't assistants for that long, yeah, they can come back and kind of play like the analyst role and then go get something else. But yeah, I think it's like a Conference USA low-level American job because now he, I don't want to call A&M like a total flop. Like he wasn't horrible at A&M. And talk about a school that we generally hold in higher regard than what they actually are. Yeah. I don't want to call him a total flop. And he had a Heisman winner. But like they, he didn't do well there. And now he's basically been a total flop at a bad program so yeah i'd like a conference usa level job probably yeah i i think it's definitely he he would have to earn his way back into a power five job i, I don't think anybody's calling him after this much no. bad resume no. tape yeah probably not i got uh, i got one more for you in the hot seat territory and this is oh. yeah i know I, I this is a surprise we might not have any job changes in the pac-12 just like the big 12 and you have three i i do yeah and, and this Again, this is kind of in the Chip Kelly mold where I'm not saying he gets fired, but the temperature gets significantly cranked up with a, whoa, what happened in 2020 kind of bad year. Do you have any guesses where I'm going with this? This is pretty out of left field. So Literally none. And I'm going to vehemently disagree with anything you say because it's going to be wrong. Okay. Well, you said that last episode, then I made a pretty good case that you agreed with. I think there is a scenario where entering the 2021 season, Jimmy Lake is on the hot seat. Jesus fucking Christ. I know. It's pretty weird. It's pretty out So before we wrap this up here, where do you think this conference will stand (laughs) three years I get nothing there? I don't even get to explain myself? Good God. No. You don't even believe that. It was like the other day. Oh, I totally do. No, you don't. Oh, yeah, I do. Good God. If this was a regular year and Jimmy Lake came in and went on 1-11, sure, let's have that conversation. Washington is not that bad. Washington is actually a pretty good team this year. They could win eight games in the Pac-12 this year. You think they could win eight games in the Pac-12 this year? Sure they could. You think Washington, in the bottom 30 of returning production with a new head coach, is going to be 8-2? Yes, there aren't enough teams at the top of the Pac-12 where I can say auto-loss, auto-loss, auto-loss. Sure, they have a lot of 50-50 games, but Washington has a more talented roster than Colorado, Arizona, Washington State, Oregon State, and then we can talk about 
Stanford, Cal, UCLA, and Arizona State. All right, I want to plant my flag here, and then we can revisit it, and you can laugh at me months from now. I think there is a chance that Washington has a what-happened-there kind of season where they end up like 4-6. and six But and, that, has, that has nothing to do with Jimmy Lake's hot seat, though. And He's because of the be way the Jimmy Lake seat. got no. the job, where Chris no. Peterson kind of forced their hand a little bit with how nope. he stepped away, nope. they go, hey. Nope. Can we move on? We can move on. One last thing here. Where does the Pac-12 stand in three years? Looking ahead three years, are we all still going to be saying the Pac-12, yes, we can talk about Oregon and you're high on USC this year, but generally there's that one team at the top of the Pac-12 where we can say either true playoff contender or, uh, playoff contender or fringe playoff contender. Are we still having that same conversation in three years, or are we going to see, like we talked about the Big 12, another team come up and really have true playoff contention status alongside an Oregon or doesn't even matter who the teams are. Are we going to have more elite teams in the Pac-12 or three years from now, are we going to have the same exact conversation that we have every single year? I'm, I'm looking really hard for an explanation. Hmm. I don't know. Here's, here's the thing. All right. I don't have a clue. Yeah. I could, I could make really good arguments both ways. I think, I think people, you know, people are inclined to not believe things until they see it. So right now, the Pac-12 is mud because they can't get a playoff team. And as soon as the Pac-12 gets a playoff team in and the Big 12 gets left out again, it's going to go back to, well, you know, the Big 12 is hurt by that round-robin thing, and, you know, they just don't play enough defense and that blah, 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 because that's what happens. Everybody plays the result. But there is, I feel like, a real disconnect with how people consume the Pac-12 less than every other Power 5 conference, it's a real disadvantage for them. So, I, I, I mean, Christian McCaffrey should have won the Heisman, you know? No shit, yeah. And he, he didn't really even have a chance because he plays in a time zone that, you know, most of the rest of the college football world isn't in. So th- that's a real thing. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's short-sighted to point that out, that they have a real problem there. And it feels like they have a burden of proof that is higher than every other conference because of that. So I really do think that this could be a long-term problem that they have. And if we're five years from now looking back and going, yeah, it's weird how they've only had zero or one playoff team since 2020 or whatever, you know, I, I just, I won't, I won't be that surprised. I really do think we could be in the early stages of seeing a a dramatic shift for the Pac-12 even more toward Olympic sports, which they dominate. And we all know they dominate at, at that. Mm-hmm. But I just think the football thing, I don't think this is a small sample size. I think this is a real problem. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think that the perception issue is a gigantic issue for them. And Maybe that's part of the reason why I don't know what this conference is going to look like. Even though I have a lot of faith in David Shaw to turn this around, I think that if Clay Helton's gone, I think that Mike Bone and USC will probably make a really, really good hire there. We have both talked about we like the direction of Arizona State is heading. We trust Kyle Whittingham a lot. But none of that can make me confidently say that we're going to have, like other conferences, we're going to, most other conferences like in the SEC where you might have two, three, or four teams that are truly capable of, of making the playoff. I don't I don't know if I can say that right now. I need to see something else, and it's not going to come in a virus year. I need to see something else, and maybe it is along the lines of a perception problem where 
other people start to notice and they haven't the Pac twelve hasn't given people a lot to notice. I mean that that's their own fault. They have a perception problem because of being on the West Coast and because of being in the mountain time ranges, because they have that uncontrollable piece of it, but they also haven't given people a lot of reason to change their perception. So I don't really know how this is going to shake out. And it's unfortunate for obviously a lot of non-football reasons why the virus is happening this year. But I think this is a conversation that we want to revisit then after the 2021 season when maybe USC has a new head coach. Maybe we'll see what Jimmy Lake is doing. We'll see if David Shaw turned it around. We'll see if Kyle Whittingham was able to rebuild on the fly. And then maybe we can have that conversation uh, after not this season, but next season. All right, we'll be back on Monday for the third episode of this six-episode series. Again, if you want a certain conference sooner rather than later, tweet at us at High Motor Pod. We'll try to make that happen. The Big 12 is now in the books, the Pac-12 in the books, the third conference coming on Monday's episode of the High Motor Podcast. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks for checking out the High Motor Podcast. We'll be back on Monday. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter because deep inside, the feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between